So, hi. Um, if I am slightly more scattered than I usually am, I have got all of my kids here tonight as well. So, there might be dinosaur invasion at some point. So, if there, if there is, I'm really sorry. I'll just try and we'll manage this as best we can. Um, I got the Esther in the, in the lotto of who got to talk about what. And it's kind of exciting. I got Rahab a couple of weeks ago, I got Esther this week, and so that's kind of fun for me. But Esther has been um, the one of the books of the Bible that I've struggled the most with as a young person growing up in the church. The book of Esther has just not made sense to me at all. It tends to either get told one of two ways. One way is this young woman who is caught up in this amazing plan of God and she does what she's put in, what's put in front of her and she rescues the people of God. Or it kind of comes across like this young girl who is being manipulated by a bunch of powerful men in her life for their political aims and she doesn't seem to really have much of a say. Neither of those things I'm particularly a massive fan of. So coming to this tonight was actually it was a little bit challenging for me to try and work out how I was going to talk about this in some kind of a useful way. But in the process of doing that, I've actually come to a third position by the end of all of my reading and formulating, which is actually my favourite part about getting to do this, is discovering things that I thought that I knew <laughs> that actually I didn't really know. Does anyone know anything about Esther? What are the things that we know, just as a baseline? Where are we at with Esther? Nothing. She was a chick. Okay. Time such as this. She saved her people. She was. There was yeah, there was lots of dudes in her in her sphere, and and that's about it. Miss Persia Universe, yes, thank you for that. <laughs> so, yeah, and whatnot, yeah, and we'll come to that. So, what I thought we would do is because it's one of those stories that everyone goes, yeah, yeah, Esther's in the Bible, uh huh, uh huh. But then when I even went back to read the story, I went, ah. Oh, I'd forgotten that that was part of the story and I got that bit wrong and I got this player wrong and I got it all wrong. So I thought the most useful thing for us to do was actually to tell the story so that we're all on the same page moving into the next bit, which will be pulling it apart. So the Jews are in Persia in captivity. That's where we, we open the story with the Jews in Persia in captivity. And then there's the king, who's been king for three years, and so he's throwing this massive big party. It's 180 days of celebration, and all of the nobles and the princes from all of the provinces in the kingdom of Persia have been invited to this massive big party for the king to show how wonderful he is. There's 127 provinces, apparently, in this kingdom at this point, and it goes all the way from India to Egypt. So it's a really big territory, and it's really diverse, and all of the nobles have come. And then at one of the nights, one of the parties, the king gets fairly drunk and he has a bit of an idea. I think I'll get my queen to come out and dance for you guys. 
wearing only her crown. <laughs> she says no and causes all this outrage because she refuses to dance naked for a drunk king and his buddies. So she gets banished. The king gets together with his little group of advisors and says, what do you think is the most appropriate thing for me to do to her? And they say, well, why don't you banish her as a lesson to all the women of the land that they shouldn't get too uppity and refuse the demands of their lords and masters. Otherwise, and I quote, there will be no end to the discord. So let's just like put an end to it now, teach the women a lesson and move on. And I'm really glad that Ian's not here tonight because there was going to be some banter that was all prepared. Doesn't have to happen now. It's all good. So then the search begins for the new queen. The king puts out a call for all the most beautiful young women in the land and he gathers them into the palace and they effectively audition for the role of the new queen. The ones that get through the first cast get put through 12 months of beauty treatments, bathing in milk and all sorts of things. And the winners of that round win a night with the king to prove their worth. And I'm going to leave some dots there. Prove their worth to the king and the one that he's most pleased with gets to become the new queen. It happened that in the group of women that were gathered into the palace was a young girl by the name of Hadassah. She was a Jew and she was particularly lovely, apparently. She was an orphan and she'd been adopted by an older male relative who looked after her. And it seems like he sent her off with his blessing to go and be part of this beauty pageant and all of the associated activities. She pleased the king spectacularly and he fell in love with her and married her. But through this whole process, she didn't tell anybody that she was a Jew. She ingratiated herself with the, the, um, the eunuch of the court who took care of all of the women and he was very pleased with her and went to extra special trouble to um, provide her with all the best of everything. And so she actually landed a pretty sweet kind of a gig. She had the best of everything. She'd become the Queen of Persia. And, um, and she hid who she really was in the process of all of that. Now, Mordecai was her uncle or her cousin, depending on which story you read, the family member that adopted her. And he would sit by the, the city gate and one day he overheard a plot to assassinate the king. So he sent word to... Hadassah, who was now known as Esther because that's a Persian name and she wanted to keep her identity on the low. He sent word to her and said, there's a plot to kill the king. You need to do something about it. So she tells the king. He you know, stops the plot, saves his life, and it further cements her role in the court as being a favourite of the king. Mordecai manages to really, really annoy Haman. Sorry about my illustrations. I couldn't find any that did the job, so I did them myself. They're very stylized. So you've got a guy with a girl with a statue. Yes, he's the villain. Oh, right? dastardly. Yes, very dastardly. He is the most highly honoured noble in the land, and everyone has to bow down to him except the king. Mordecai refuses to bow down, and it starts to irritate Haman. But rather than retaliate and just have a go at Mordecai. He decides to 
uh, wipe out, take revenge on the whole of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so he convinces the king to let him issue an edict that would go um, empire-wide, that on one day all of the Jews would be exterminated by any loyal Persian citizen could kill a Jew on sight, and we were going to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet for the disrespect of one man. He didn't tell the king what he was doing, but he got his royal seal and did it anyway. Now Mordecai finds out about this and freaks out because effectively he's caused this to happen. And he sends a message to Esther and says, even though you are in the king's court, don't think that you will escape this. As soon as they work out that you're a Jew, you're just as dead as the rest of us. But right now you're in a position to do something, so do something. Help us. And she says, well, get everyone together and fast. I'm going to go in front of the king. But no one went in front of the king. If you weren't summoned, you didn't go. Because if you went, you'd be killed. So it was pretty disrespectful. But she gathered up her courage and she went to the king. And she was the favourite. And so he let her approach and he didn't kill her. And not only did he not kill her, he said, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. What is it that you want? And she says, I'll tell you what I want, but come to dinner, just you and Haman, come to dinner and have dinner at my place. So they come and have dinner and the king says, well, what is it that you want? And she says, well, come back tomorrow night, come back and have dinner again and then I'll tell you what I really want. And Haman goes home and he is buoyant with the honour of going to dinner with just the king and the queen and he's so full of himself that the disrespect of Mordecai just kind of irritates him even more and he has a bit of a vent with his wife who suggests that maybe she make an example of him. So he goes, that's a great idea, I know, I'll hang him publicly. So he builds this massive big gallows overnight to hang Mordecai publicly as a lesson to the Jews who are about to be exterminated anyway. The king meanwhile can't sleep and so he's reading back the journals of his reign as the king and notices that Mordecai the Jew had saved his life but hadn't been rewarded in any way. So the next morning he goes into his court and he says, Haman, what should I do to honour a man that is the best honour that I could come up with? What is the most amazing thing I could do? And Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. So he talks up this amazing rewards package with, you know, some of the clothes that the king had worn and a horse that the king had ridden. So it was like this amazing rewards package. And the king goes, excellent. Remember Mordecai the Jew? He saved my life, but no one rewarded him. I want you to go and do all that stuff for him. And Haman, fuming. He doesn't know what to do. He's humiliated. He's angry and he is still so, so annoyed at Mordecai. But he goes to dinner that night with the king and the queen again in the hope of maybe kind of solidifying his position even further. So he gets through dinner and the king goes, all right, my love, what is it that you really desire? And she says, well, the thing that I, the only thing I want is my life and the life of my people spared from the evil plot that has been put in motion to exterminate the lot of us. And the king's furious. He's like, who would dare to put out an order of assassination on my wife? Like, seriously? And he's furious. And she says, it was him. It was the guy sitting across the table from us. He's put out the order of assassination on all of the Jews. 
And the king's so cross, he doesn't know what to do, so he stomps out to the garden to cool down. And Haman throws himself at the feet of the queen. Please don't kill me. He doesn't know what to do. And the king comes stomping back in to try and solve the problem and sees Haman in the lap of the queen and assumes that he is trying to molest her, loses his temper even further and hangs Haman on perfect irony. The gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai ended up becoming the place that Haman himself died. So then the queen manages to convince the king to repeal the edict. Yeah, gallows. <laughs> Droopy little moustache. <laughs> well, it's droopy. <laughs> so the, the king issues another edict across the land that repeals the first one, but then Esther manages to talk him into not just repealing it, but putting in place an order that allows the Jewish people to use deadly force if necessary to defend themselves against any attacks from any enemies that might come in the wake of the first edict. And not only does she do that, she convinces the king to allow that order to stand for a second day in case there might be some retaliation. In the, in the end, it was a spectacular bloodbath. The story tells us that around 75,000 Persians were killed in those two days as the Jews defended themselves and fought for their liberty against these people that had been oppressing them pretty hard. That's the origin of the story of Purim. The Jewish people celebrate these two days where they were given permission to fight back against oppression. And so they celebrate and then they have, um, they have the, the two days of like um, reflecting on turmoil and then they have the one day where they have the feasting and the celebration to reflect on their victory over their enemies. So I thought, oh, sorry, there's the retaliation. <laughs> and you can't see it real good on this screen, but I was really, really proud of it because there's one guy who's doing like punchies and there's another guy with a pitchfork and there's one guy stabbing <laughs> someone with a spear. It was really fun to draw. <clears throat> Irrelevant. What stands out for you? So what we're going to do is just have our little break now. So with the people that you're sitting near, have a quick conversation about what are the things that stand out for you now that we've gone over what's actually happened in the story. What are the things that you've maybe noticed for the first time or the things that you think are really good about the story or the things that you think are really bad about the story or the things that you think don't make sense? So we're going to do that for a minute, yeah? Right, so I hope that by now you guys are maybe a little bit used to the fact that um, I might accidentally slightly challenge the way that you might have seen some stuff. So. If this challenges you or you think this is heresy, please wait until the end to stone me. <laughs> so I can call my husband and get him to pick up the kids. <laughs> we don't actually know if the Book of Esther was really a thing. It probably wasn't really even a thing. There's quite a bit of debate, and I've, I read a whole lot of different scholars' opinions over it. The king was either Xerxes or Artaxerxes or Artaxerxes II or Hazarus and there's a whole lot of debate about what that even means, whether they were the same person or they were different people or they were sons or they were generations. Of... It started to do my head in and I looked at who Vashti was and none of the scholars have been able to actually credibly link Vashti 
as a wife of any of the kings in that period at all with a story that matches this. So Vashti was sent away and the only one who had a name that was even remotely like that lived into her old age and saw her son become kings. So it probably wasn't her. So scholars have kind of come to a conclusion that it may not necessarily have actually been a historical story. So if it's not a historical story, why is it even in the Bible and why are we trying to study it and what are we trying to understand from it and why did they include it in the canon of the Bible in the first place if it's just a story? Particularly since it's about a woman. Particularly since it's about a woman, you know. It seems like the book of Esther is actually a thing that today we would call historical fiction. And at the time that it was written, it was a really popular genre of literature that was used as kind of a um, propaganda tool, sort of a bit like nationalistic fervour whipping. And so it happened across the whole of that, that the, um, the known world at that time. There was lots of these um, examples of this, of this type of literature. The stuff that I read said that the setting of Persia is accurate. The way the kings talked and the way that the laws worked and the, the, the court functions and all of that sort of stuff, that all makes sense for the period. Because it was set around 400, 500 BC. So at that point of time, we're talking about just, just after Daniel was in the king's court, the lion's den and all of that. It's also right around the time of Sparta. You know the 300 thing with the Spartans, Spartans who the king of Persia was charging through Greece. That's all at this time, period of time. What doesn't actually make sense is the characters. And so... No, it's a fictional story that was written for a particular purpose. And so then I kind of went, well, what was the particular purpose? The stuff that I read indicated that actually this book was written around 5 BC. It's a newy <laughs> compared to some of the older stuff. It also puts it at a really interesting point in time, around the birth of Christ. I read that and I went, whoa, and went running down to my husband, you'll never guess what. It blew my mind. I had no idea. I had been reading it as a book that was written contemporary of Daniel, but it's actually a book that's contempor written contemporary of Jesus, set back in the past. And it sort of made it make a bit more sense to me, I reckon, because the Jewishness in the story of Esther is actually about national identity. God's not mentioned. There's no religious customs or, you know, look in the book of Daniel, the food laws and the fabric laws and the who you can associate with thing is a really big feature of Daniel's relationship with the Babylonian um, court because there's this real tension there. In this, there doesn't seem to be any of that. She just sort of waltzes in and bathes in milk, which is probably breaks kosher laws and a whole lot of things. And there doesn't seem to be any commentary about how that impacted her faith. It actually makes a whole lot of sense if you read it from the perspective of Israel at, around the birth of Christ was in massive 
political upheaval, the, they were under oppression from the Romans and they were really struggling with their own identity and how do you be Jewish nationally in a homeland under oppression when the temple keeps getting knocked down or replaced or, you know, there was the Maccabean revolution where the Jews took up arms and fought the Romans off in order to even reoccupy their own temple. So there was this like crazy kind of political atmosphere when Jesus, that Jesus stepped into that then when you read the book of Esther going, oh, this is a book about national identity. This is a book about who are we as Jews and how do we, how should we react to the oppressors? Kill them all. You can kind of see the, the nationalistic fervour that it was trying to whip up if you read it from that, from that framework. Does that make sense? Yeah. Has it, has it made anybody else's brain leak a little bit in their ears? Yeah. So if it's fictional and that was the point of it and it was to whip up national identity, what's the point of us reading it? Well, you guys probably know if you've sat with me for longer than about five minutes that I have a bit of a thing about pop culture and the way that we can learn from pop culture. <laughs> so I sat and reflected on this story a bit, reading it through and kind of trying to feel it from the perspective of a fictional like a historical fictional novel. You know the thing that sort of popped up? The Hunger Games. <laughs> right? It's a novel, series of novels, that have been written for young adults with a very strong female <laughs> lead. And I volunteer as tribute. I'll compete for the benefit of my people. I'll discover a plot or two along the way. I'll risk my life to overthrow oppression. I'll lead a rebellion. I'll continue to have really good hair. <laughs> there are some really startling parallels between The Hunger Games and um, my child is coming. Sorry. Between The Hunger Games and the story of Esther. And I love things like The Hunger Games because they, they whip us up to think about well, they're designed to whip us up and think about how do we deal with oppressive systems? How do we, particularly as a woman, how do I deal with um, systems that are designed to keep me compliant and quiet and sit down and shut up, right? So if Esther actually feels quite like that, I kind of went, you know what? I think Esther is young adult dystopian fiction 4, 5 BC. <laughs> it's really kind of cool. So rather than read this as a theology text, I decided that I was going to read it like a young adult dystopian fiction novel. And the things that I noticed was that, was that Vashti was a bit of a feminist icon. She refused to dance naked for her ruler, even though that was quite possibly the end of her life but she refused to submit to his misogyny going there. It's the story of a young girl caught up in an adventure with the possibility of becoming queen and maybe not thinking through what it would take to get there, but the adventure is kind of exciting along the way. It's the story of a young woman who finds herself in the unique position of having the ear of the king 
realising her people are about to be exterminated and realising that she has to do something. And it's a story of a young woman who suddenly finds the courage to act, to start a rebellion. And that's kind of cool. When we come down to the end of all of that, I sort of went, well, okay. We found ourselves with a bit of a novel, a bit of a, you know, exciting feminist story about standing up against your oppressors and on a larger scale, a bit of a nationalistic, you know, tale of fighting back against oppressors. But I couldn't work out what we were going to take away from this. What relevance does it have for us? Realistically, this story is designed as a national identity, as ethnic identity story. They were designed to help the people understand who they were and give framing for their traditions that they had. It was written at a time of huge political unrest to help the Jews to hang on to their identity. I think that if we look at our political climate right now, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of um, nationalism and identity and we're going to Brexit because we want our own identity rather than being part of the European Union. There's lots of talk about putting up walls or firming borders or um, establishing better immigration control or not having to serve people in my restaurant if I don't like who you are or where you've come from. There's a lot of that discussion happening politically at the moment. So when we read the story of Esther, we realise it betrays the heartbeat of the Jewish people at that point in time. Their desire for revenge or for retaliation or for retribution for the wrongs that have been done against them. And we see so many parallels between that and where we're at now as a global community with so much retaliation and retribution and talk of revenge. So I thought, you know, this was the, this was the climate that Jesus was in. So if he was talking to them about that, maybe he was talking to us too. So what did he say? Well, Jesus said, go and declare the kingdom of heaven is near. Not the kingdom of any particular land, but he said, go and declare the kingdom of heaven is near. He said, blessed are the meek and the poor and the hungry. He said, woe to the rich ones whose reputation he said, turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. He said, I am sent to proclaim freedom and sight and the favour of the Lord in the land. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to lead the people. But a sword to overthrow the Romans. And they missed the carpenter on a donkey who kind of wandered in to show a different way to rebel, a different way to fight oppression. I think that Jesus had an example of love and he showed the example of the identity of a child of heaven rather than the identity of any particular national affiliation even. I think that he calls us to do the same. So I originally thought that this was going to be a big discussion about the whole social justice thing and liberty from oppression and 
you know, rising up and how do we fight against people who are being oppressive. But, um, you know, and the meal was supposed to be this symbol of freedom from oppression and it was going to be this whole thing until I got to this point of writing it and then realising that it's actually something entirely else that I feel like I was supposed to bring today. I think the story of Esther explains why the Jews missed the importance of Jesus when he came. Because they literally were expecting someone to rise up and to cast off the oppression with violence. This story says, violence sets you free. That's what the story of Esther says, that violence sets you free. This was the place that the Jews were in when they met Jesus and saw that he was doing something entirely different. I think it's a cautionary story for us. The story of Esther seems really cool until it comes to the crunch of it being that violence is the way that you set yourself free. And I think then Jesus coming shows us a completely different way of approaching oppression. But it also teaches us that a, a desire for identity at the expense of other people actually leads to violence. It caused them to be blind to the revolution of the kingdom that was coming because they were caught up in who they were <coughs> and how they related to the world. They missed what God was doing. Um, I wanted to share a bit of a personal story, if you'll indulge me just ever so slightly, because I'm going to ask you guys a fairly confronting series of questions next. And I figured that I can't really ask you guys to be honest about stuff if I'm not prepared to be slightly vulnerable as well. So, a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab community. I lived with a bunch of dudes who were recovering from some pretty hardcore drugs and, and I became quite, built quite a hard shell to cope with really broken guys who don't know how to relate to themselves or the world or women at all and so I became sort of not woman-y. But I discovered that I was actually really quite lonely because you build up that shell and you push people away and I didn't actually know any humans that weren't addicted to, addicted to drugs. So I had kind of started to push the world away, but I was lonely. And so I, um, ridiculously, had grown my hair out and put more effort than was necessary into having beautiful hair because that was the only thing about me that I thought was beautiful. And I figured that if anyone was gonna like me, it probably wasn't gonna be because of the potato-iness, it was gonna be because of my beautiful hair. In a community of guys who are broken, that actually becomes quite a problem when your focus is on how do I get people to love me. And one day, I really strongly felt God say, enough is enough, take the hair off. And I had a little bit of a moment and then shaved my head. Because go big or go home. <laughs> So I went around with no hair for a while, like a rough nut, and my passport photo, which I couldn't find to show you, is me looking like a criminal. <laughs> because I had no hair and I had an eyebrow ring and I was angry. And when I look back on that photo, I can see how angry I was. But God was doing something in me and getting rid of my hair actually broke that part of my need, at least at that point. 
to try and be attractive so that people would love me. About four or five months later, I was in the process of doing a, you know, we were running a creative worship night for the guys, and God said to me, all right, clearly I didn't get my message through quite well enough. Take your eyebrow ring out, because you are creating an identity for yourself about being a rough nut, and that's not up the swing in pendulum-wise, let's find a happy medium, take your eyebrow ring out, because it's creating identity for you, and you are deriving, you know, worth from the way that people perceive you. So I took my eyebrow ring out, and again, God did something really cool. And he continues to do that with me. Every time I get slightly too attached to something, he will make me cut it off. I strongly suspect my dreads will be the next to go. <laughs> Oh, what happened to yeah, yeah. Yes. I was too attached to my finger and so I had to cut it off. Right. I was cutting beetroot, it wasn't sinful. And I find that the pattern of my life is that God often calls me back to this place of where are you getting your identity from? Is it from the clothes that you're wearing or is it from the way that you present yourself to the world? And he is really mean about it all. But <laughs> So the thing that I wanted to ask you guys tonight is off the back of this story about Esther hiding her identity until it really mattered and then causing a rebellion and it all being a big thing and then the whole story with Jesus. What is the thing in your identity that you hold on to? What are the things that shape you and that um, that you cling to because it means so much that people see you like that? Or without that part of your identity, you kind of maybe fall apart a bit? Is it the things that you have and the way that you've constructed your life? Is it maybe your reputation and the way that you think that people perceive you? Is it your job and the things that you do? Does that give you worth and shape your identity? Is it your rad styling and super cool dreads that defines you? I feel like God wants to challenge us tonight about the things that we hang on to that create our identity. Jesus encourages us to be kids of the kingdom of God and to find our worth in our relationship with him, with God and the way that he wants us to be in the world. So I want to encourage us tonight as we eat together, let's be celebrating not a violent revolution of fighting against our oppressors, but let's celebrate the fact that our identities are secure and defined by our relationship with God as kids of the kingdom rather than any other thing we do or possess. And that's all I wanted to say tonight. Thank you for listening to me.